G'day, I'm Glyn Davis, and welcome to The Policy Shop, a place where we think about policy choices. What really drives the economy is the market system, and it's it's the people like the Jeff Bezos of the world. And, and we haven't had good productivity gains lately, but productivity per capita goes up, the country's wealthier. It's that simple. So productivity gains and innovation are the key. 60% of our national productivity comes from innovation. So the biggest driver of better living standards in Australia is productivity. And the biggest driver of productivity is innovation. So that's why it matters. The US is 30 times richer than it was 200 years ago, but it's not because it's producing 30 times more of the stuff that it was producing 200 years ago. It's producing different kinds of goods that did not exist with different kinds of techniques that did not exist. So the process of growth has meant changing what you make and changing how you make it. Productivity really is not the most exciting term, but it matters so much as a bedrock of living standards, opportunities, and what we can promise our children in generations to come. Today, our focus is productivity, perhaps the most sought-after goal for the Australian economy, only surpassed perhaps by the relentless search for innovation. But what is productivity? Why is it important? Recent reports from the OECD and the Australian Treasury show an encouraging Australian picture when it comes to productivity, so do we have anything to worry about? The Productivity Commission certainly thinks so, and it's announced that every five years it will produce a dedicated report to monitor the health of Australia's productivity and make policy suggestions a government should consider. Peter Harris is the chairman of the Productivity Commission, and he joins us on the line from Canberra to talk about this report and why solving the productivity puzzle is so important. Peter, welcome to The Policy Shop. Thanks, Glenn. So we hear a lot about productivity, but can you tell us exactly what it is? The very best for me is the most amusing, that productivity is a measure of what we don't know about the Australian economy. That is, magically, when we put one more, as it were, unit of labour or one more unit of capital to work, we get 1.01 additional units of output. That is, the stuff keeps getting better. And the important point about this being, we don't quite know why. Now, we think we've got some handle on this, but we don't quite know why. And it's tremendously important, should that little machine start slowing or choking, um, that we understand better why and we potentially attempt to fix it. And there is little doubt uh, that the machine is choking and slowing. In fact, no real doubt at all. Why does that matter, Peter? Why is it important that productivity continues to increase? Because that additional unit, that additional 0.01 that we get out of it, is a very substantial contributor to our national income, literally to the incomes that are shared out across Australia. And that's not in the sense of saying it's a direct reward you get at work. It's just that the opportunity to be paid more comes from higher demand, from better producing parts of the economy that enable you to shift to a job in there or for your children to get a job in there. And sustainably over decades, demonstrably across economies, not just ours, but the world's economy, Productivity has been the primary driver of income growth. And therefore, to the extent that we see income growth is how we give ourselves a better lifestyle. And so that money, which you know some people would say is not the be-all and end-all of human existence, but that money translates into opportunity, an opportunity for a better lifestyle. In a speech at the recent Melbourne Institute Economic and Social Outlook Conference, you stated, and this is a quote, 
a force that has been primarily responsible for lifting incomes and creating value to share amongst labour and capital for decade after decade since the early stages of the Industrial Revolution appears to be in decay across the developed world. So why is productivity declining across the world and how much do we share in this global trend? This is the big question, why? And the answer is, there's a deep uncertainty about why. But you would, notwithstanding uncertainty, say that if something that has been so responsible for producing enhanced opportunity and income over such a sustained period, you know, a century or more, is choking and slowing and in some cases hitting zero or even negative rates, you would say that we should be trying to do something about it. And the uncertainty factor, the we aren't quite sure why, says that there are going to be judgments to be made and criticisms to be endured about whether this measure versus that measure is the better measure. But doing nothing in the face of this is going to condemn us to a slowly declining economic paradigm. And the damage in a slowly declining economic paradigm is that everybody's going to compete harder and harder for a smaller share of a declining opportunity. And that isn't just the campaign much loved by ideologues between labour and capital, it's even between individual parts of the economy at the labour level. So this is central then to individual opportunity for prosperity. It is, in an economic sense, the be-all and end-all. You know, we spend so much time concentrating on, say, the federal budget or a state budget or things like that. Ultimately, this is the primary difference for me as a public policy person between microeconomics and macroeconomics, uh, the federal budget document is just that. It's an accounting transaction for a part of the Australian economy. But the substantial force that alters the Australian economy over the medium and long term is productivity and deserves at least the same level of regular attention as a budget document would, primarily because the one is much larger than the other. Peter, some commentators have suggested that the reason for a fall in productivity is because today's innovations do not compare in scale or impact with the breakthroughs of the 90s, let alone earlier waves of transformation that gave us urban sanitation and electricity, the telephone, television, and so on. And they point to the long lead times for many of the more recent innovations to play out into the economy. Noting, for example, that Thomas Edison invented the light bulb in the 1870s and 1880s, but it took nearly a century before this was ubiquitous across American homes. Are we simply seeing a change in the pattern of innovation and that's what's playing into productivity? Yeah, well, that's one of the very important questions that contribute to this overall response to why. And uh, and the data that's uh, been put together by the particularly some US economists have spent a lot of time analysing just that question that you outlined in fantastic detail does tend to suggest that today's innovations are translating less readily into substantial improvements in productivity than yesterday's innovations. That is indeed a significant part of the answer to the question why. It begs another question, well then, why is that so? We see this transformation occurring in front of us in our daily lives. We all carry you know, an exceptionally powerful computer in our pocket now and it gives us additional, as it were, social benefits. But at the same time, business appears to be investing heavily in the utilisation of similar products, and yet it's not translating to a significant increase in productivity and therefore in opportunity to uh, earn incomes and have our children have, uh, you know, as it were, a better life than, than we had. So a conundrum is followed by another conundrum. There's a really good analysis of electric motors and how when electric motors were discovered, 
they replace steam engines in factories, but they put the motors in exactly the same place as the steam engines. And what that meant was you had these very large motors a long way uh, located from actual production, and you didn't get much of an efficiency gain. And only when factory managers retired and or factories were entirely replaced were electric motors placed closer to production, and you gained an immense benefit uh, from that in terms of not having to have this very large factory area of multiple floors and belts running up and down them and all that kind of thing to drive power. That reorganisation is an important contributor and a possible partial answer to this question, why hasn't the kind of innovation that we are seeing in the early stages of a digital economy we're now engaged in, why haven't we seen that translate to productivity? And it may simply be that, that although we're investing in buying these things, we're not necessarily applying them with a different organisational mindset. Can I ask you the follow-up, the obvious follow-up question? If contemporary innovation is not producing the productivity gains we expected, what role for policy? And that's the crucial question. And this report that we have given the government an analysis, the government's asked us now to conduct every five years into the big questions of productivity in the Australian economy and what could be done about them. Um, this analysis drives us towards the idea of looking at the non-market economy, such as it's described. That is, the provision of services where in the productivity statistics, inputs are equated with outputs, literally, and therefore there's no analytical capability to say exactly how productive these services are. They're classic services and ones that are tremendously important to us in our daily lives, health and education and infrastructure and the provision of services in urban environments. So many of these are controlled by governments. We provide the payments opportunities for this. We set the prices for them. We actually do the purchasing. We regulate the provision. And yet, Inside an economy, they're far more difficult to analyse from a productivity perspective. So we've tried to spend a bit more time on that than on what you might call a classic market economy. It's not to say the classic market economy is unimportant. We've sort of said it's in its own adjustment phase. But the role of government in being able to, quote, do something about the early digitisation of an economy is reasonably limited. It's limited in a positive way, that is... Don't go into denial and don't impede things, but instead perhaps smooth and help with adjustment. But in a direct provision of services kind of analysis of the Australian economy, the services where governments themselves are the primary transactors on our behalf, these are not subject to substantial analytical testing and policy development. And in our thesis, they should be. So I'm very keen to, to follow up on this. The report you mentioned is called Shifting the Dial. It will be produced every five years, uh, similar to the intergenerational report. Peter, can I ask you the aim of the exercise and why it's timely? So most of the work that the Productivity Commission has in its history been asked to do for governments is about specific industries or specific programs or specific sectors of the Australian economy. This, for the first time, we've been asked to take the whole picture and say where government could potentially make a difference in, I like the term, it's our term, shift the dial, show how productivity could be lifted in the medium term by governments doing things better, whether that is designing public policy better or acting on our behalf as a purchaser and supplier of services better, but show how we might actually shift the dial. The term came from discussions that we've had previously in a number of our reports with different submitters, interlocutors, uh, parties that we deal with at roundtables who find it really hard to work out how, even though in their particular industry, their shop floor productivity is rising, that overall productivity in the Australian economy is not naturally following. And the answer usually is it's a far more complex thing 
to shift productivity at a national level than it is at a shop floor level. And so there is this natural interest in, as it were, how to shift the dial. And this government decided to give us the opportunity to come up with something that attempts to address that bigger picture question. So let's talk for a minute about that measure. Throughout the mining boom, we kept hearing that our productivity was in drastic decline, though people argued they had to do with what we were measuring and the way mining was changing those rules. And since the mining boom ended, in a sense, we've apparently seen a very sharp increase in productivity, which does suggest this is an artifact of what we're measuring rather than a substantial measure of what's happening across the economy. Can you talk to that question? The oddity, the extreme oddity that's been occurring amongst developed economies since the mid-2000s is notwithstanding that labour productivity has shifted in most economies roughly speaking to where you might expect it to as a result of these kinds of cyclical investment factors. The productivity that gives us the 0.01, which you know I'm going to revert to a form of conversation that we use here, the multi-factor productivity, has been either zero or negative in the Australian economy and in most developed economies since the mid-2000s. That is, that secret extra bit that somehow we get from combining another unit of capital, another unit of labour, it's always given us more than the one additional unit of production that we expected. That's reverted to close to zero or negative across developed economies, not just Australia, but certainly in Australia. And we remain in this position where, if you like, the secret additional bit that we get, the secret in the sense that we're not quite sure of why, although we have a number of plausible scenarios for why, but nevertheless, we're not sure That's something we're not sure about is now negative or zero and for a sustained period. In other words, a period long enough to worry about it. If you only got a a negative or a zero in multi-factor productivity in one year or one couple of years, you could rationally dismiss that. But decade long now and across the developed world, that's a genuine worry. And reflected inside that, you mentioned innovation, Glenn, in your introduction, and reflected in that is notwithstanding innovation and investment in innovation, we appear to be in decline. How is that possible? And how is that possible You know, on a sustained basis? You would imagine that the businesses would rationally say, gee, if we're only getting 99.9, as it were, for the additional unit of labour and the additional unit of capital, and we always used to get 1.01. Let's stop investing. Why would we invest? Now, there would be a genuine worry, wouldn't it? Because yeah. let's stop investing says let's not produce the tools for the future. And we can't allow that to happen. From a government perspective, a public policy design person such as myself, it's inherent in me. We can't allow that to happen. We can't allow the paradigm to settle in minds that drive investment in the Australian economy or amongst parties who design the public policy that backs up investment, such as educators, such as the institutions that you're engaged in, we can't allow that mindset to settle that, oh, it's okay that this might have all just turned negative. It's not okay. We must be trying to look for solutions. You've touched a couple of times on service sector and on education, and indeed a Treasury report's highlighted that the service sector will remain responsible for growth prospects and productivity in the long run. Can you say a bit about the focus of the Productivity Commission on, say, health and education? And not surprisingly, as someone in the education sector, which produces close to $20 billion a year in exports, how does government expect to address productivity in a sector like this? This is the substantial focus of the Shifting the Dial report. It says to government, government collectively, state and federal, you're responsible for this sector. You design the inputs, you price them in many cases, you purchase them on behalf of people in many cases at prices that you have set. You are so 
heavily involved in these sectors which are crucial to the lives of Australians and yet we do not treat them as being analytical creatures in the same way we treat the rest of the Australian economy. And, and we're talking here in health and education alone, and then this is leaving aged care out of health because I could bulk up the numbers by putting in aged care or ancillary services in relation to education, such as real estate for students who are accommodated at universities. This is not including those, but those sectors in the last two decades have gone from about 10% of the Australian economy to about 15%. It's a very big shift. Yep. But it's a very big shift in that time frame, and it's not going to get any smaller because the demand for skills is higher and higher in employment now. And so education and that demand for skills are directly linked. So that sector is going to keep growing regardless of vagaries in the international economy and the terms of trade and everything else. That sector is going to keep growing. And in health, we have an aging population. We have higher technology. We have more pharmaceuticals and cures to potentially apply. That just means those two sectors alone are going to become ever larger parts of the Australian economy. And every productivity gain, if I can use my terminology here, that we can develop in those sectors will be magnified by that continuous growth as it will outperform other sectors of the Australian economy over time. So you get a benefit on top of your benefit to the extent that we can deliver those services more efficiently and to the extent that we can design public policy that ensures that the vast degree of government involvement in this, it's involvement that's aimed at an objective about improving service quality much more than it is aimed at simply the management of fiscal interactions between Commonwealth and state, for example. Can I ask you again about the measures? Because in these service sectors where improving service quality is the objective, are we confident that that gets measured under multi-factor productivity? I don't think we can say we are confident at all. This is the great difficulty. Statistically, the system is not set up for us to gather the information that's necessary to do that, often at the individual operating level. If you treat a university sector as an industry, the data is not gathered that would enable us to do that, singling out universities as one example. And at the um, macro level, as I said, there's a lot of assumption behind the productivity statistics when it involves the non-market economy, simply because it's not as easy to measure the translation of inputs into outputs. We are, to extent, flying blind here, but notwithstanding that, my primary contention is we have to be seen to act because we can't allow this paradigm to settle that it's apparently going to be okay for something that for so long has given us this additional X-factor bonus in terms of reward in the economy to shift from being positive to negative. And implicit in that for both education and health, I guess, is the notion that public policy needs to be very sophisticated about what it's trying to do. You need a really seriously well-elaborated policy framework if you're going to make a difference to productivity. Oh, I think that's right, and more importantly, if you're going to have it accepted. I mean, I'm very conscious in this job that, well, because we are the Productivity Commission and we talk about productivity, nevertheless, in health and education sectors, I don't think too many practitioners in there would see themselves as being in the game in order to improve productivity. They would see their um, responsibilities quite differently. And we're not asking them to change their mindset, but we are asking governments as the purchasers and the inducers of behaviour and the setters of prices to start considering these things as significant contributors to productivity across the economy. In other words, the mindset that has to shift is first at government level and then amongst practitioners, some acceptance that it is not an unreasonable thing, regardless of the fact that they would not see themselves as being 
as it were, in the game in order to improve productivity across the Australian economy, but to nevertheless accept that this is a legitimate role for governments, that governments should start thinking in this manner rather than simply think, as I said earlier, in terms of, for example, the, the generally contentious costs in terms of fiscal impacts between Commonwealth and state. I'd like to turn to another area that's touched on in the report, the energy market. Uh, you make some very specific recommendations about the market uh, and you argue through the report that urgent action is required. Why will failure to act in the energy arena hurt Australia's future growth? I think alarmingly, uncertainty has arisen and whilst every business faces uncertainty and there's not the role of government to say, I can offer you all certainty, but in this particular sector, because again, the government sets the rules, the government doesn't, in some cases, directly control prices, but certainly controls the mechanism by which prices are set, values the assets and allows that through regulated pricing to be a substantial driver in cost because the government does all these things, the government needs to say to itself, Am I contributing as much certainty for the parties doing the investing, regardless of whether they are private sector or public sector parties doing the investing in energy? Am I creating enough certainty for them in order to invest? And the answer to that is I'm only at best doing it partially. I do have relative certainty for renewables investors, but I do not have certainty outside that. And in fact, what I've probably done and allowing a range here that's not just simply a competition between, as it were, the renewables and the remainder of energy. It's actually across the different pricing elements of the provision of energy, I've allowed the rules and the standards and the ways of behaving to depart from a simple single goal, which is the sufficient provision of energy to see that uncertainty doesn't result in, as it were, prices being bid up simply because I'm not certain about where I'm going to get energy from next year. Governments haven't delivered that, and they have the responsibility for doing it. In the end, it has to be a sufficiently comprehensive level of certainty to cover not just renewables, but the other potential contributing sources of energy. Peter Harris, isn't it the case, though, that to get that certainty, you need a single effective price for carbon? Haven't we been here before and didn't prove politically intractable last time? doesn't mean it's wrong. We, we don't go out trying to antagonise governments, but governments ask us for advice and I guess the reputation of the entity, which I'm proud to be chair, is that you know we don't pull the punches. I guess my hope with governments is they read it for what it is. We think this is the simple truth, and yet we're not simply saying price carbon and all your problems will be solved. We're not saying that. We do actually go probably more in depth to the governance arrangements, to this actual structures by which governments themselves intervene in the energy supply arrangements. But conceptually, the logic is simple, as the Finkel report itself was saying, you know, you need to be able to provide a carbon-based or an emissions-based budget for the industry as a whole that enables the forecasting of opportunities by a government party, the energy market operator, to take that budget for emissions and say, here's our current production of emissions, whether it is an emissions pricing scheme or whether it is a clean energy target as per the Finkel report, but some kind of paradigm in which the energy market operator can mix the demand forecast with the emission needs and provide that guidance to potential future investors. Absent both of those, not just one of them, but both of them, you're not going to get certainty of investment. 
Peter, could we now turn to a couple of institutional questions that are raised in your report? There's a very striking line where you say, there is no sense of a national challenge needing collective effort towards solutions. And two institutions that you name as not working as you feel they should are the Council of Australian Governments, which is the peak intergovernmental forum, and in the culture in the public service. Can I ask you to speak to both? In the case of COAG, um, not to put too fine a point on it, people who work within the system now and need to have ideas, because the ideas can only be effective if they are coordinated nationally between Commonwealth and state government, people who work within the system that we interacted with for the, in the generation of this report are the source of that conclusion about COAG not working. And in, in one celebrated comment uh, made to us, the way that COAG works today, it's ultimately entirely about short-term deliverables, whereas it ought to be about the medium and long-term. And a more crude response has been, COAG is the place where good policy goes to die. Now, when from within the system you have that constant level of, I don't want to say criticism because it's more than criticism, it, it's disappointment with a structure that is so important if we are to have a nationally coordinated response to the kinds of initiatives that we propose in our Shifting the Dial report, that is, that the institution itself must change. And yet, as we say in the report, this is almost a cost-free shift. In the case of COAG, the idea of refreshing the commitment to a level of cooperation across the medium-term national public policy requirements, that refresh of mindset is cheap. It rather requires something else, which is a deep sense of commitment to a collective national response. Now, we once had that. In your time and my time, Gwyn, uh, <laughs> a couple of decades ago, sounding like, like old farts, uh, talking on, yes. on the Bidawee Nursing Home Veranda at the retirement place for old public servants, in my case. <laughs> um, in, in we once had that, and I refuse to believe that it is impossible to reinstitute it, and I guess our hope is that this report will say to governments, see the opportunity, see how clear it is, and recognise that your role in delivering this isn't simply to say, you know, well done, Productivity Commission, we propose to endorse recommendation X, Y, and Z. It's to say we need to refresh the collective effort behind the thinking in a report like this, and we commit ourselves to doing so. In the case of the public service, there's not enough outcome-based commitment to enhancing the ability of public servants to design and implement public policy today. That is, that many of the kinds of people that we're interacting with, which are not the CEOs and secretaries and heads of these entities, but the people responsible for delivering programs, were not encouraged to be risk-based thinkers and were often not skilled to be risk-based thinkers, both in design and delivery of these kinds of programs. Rather, they were encouraged to remain within a quite safe paradigm, which doesn't invite necessarily very substantial change. And so we have a recommendation in there on the public sector, which we think is quite important. And that is, there's a lot of analytical work that has gone on by the various public service commissions and uh, capability reviews and things like that. There's a lot of analytical work that is available on this, but it seems to rarely translate itself into the obligations upon the leaders of the public sector to take account of that on a continuing medium-term basis again. So we're in this 
paradigm still of medium-term thinking that says there should be some obligation for you to recognise that building capability is tremendously important to being able to deliver the sorts of things we've talked about here. And to that extent, we've gone to the uh, level of proposing that there is, a, as it were, a charter letter in the same sense that ministers, when they first take on their portfolio responsibilities at the Commonwealth level, get a charter letter from the Prime Minister saying, we expect you to deliver X and Y and Z over the period of government. Uh, we see the potential role of the head of PM&C as being able to say that to the heads of agencies and heads of departments, and we think the states could do similar things around the capability of the agency they run. That is, take the analysis and turn it into something that is deliverable over the medium term. And presumably holding them to account as well. That's right. Holding to account means performance pay or things like that. And yet, consistent with the information that came back to us through the development of this report, that money is really not a very wise driver of a lot of public policy activity particularly deprivation of pay is not a very wise driver. I mean, it may work in some specific circumstances, but most of the time it is the clear iteration to individuals who are faced with a thousand different responsibilities in running complex agencies that this one has been elevated from the ruck to the top. This one, in clear articulation terms, belongs to you as a deliverable in your term running this entity. Now, we've talked about investment and industry. We've talked about government and policy. I'd like to turn to the community side of this. Uh, The OECD report earlier this year stated that while Australia has achieved some of its strongest productivity growth over the past five years, this has not led to any growth in workers' incomes. So does a reform agenda require a new social contract? And what changes is the Productivity Commission looking for here? I think the question is a set of labour productivity having within the OECD, we indeed have performed very well at a labour productivity level versus, again, other developed nations. But for the form of productivity that most concerns public policy design, that is multi-factor productivity, we're just with the rest of them in this negative area. The reason labour productivity probably matters most when you link it to wages is because there's a clear logic link, as it were, between individuals producing more and the possibility of being paid more. But the idea of creating a social compact which says we must somehow lock that in beyond that which we currently do apply, and so we do have a minimum wage level in Australia, and we have reviewed that in the Productivity Commission, and we do find it overall a desirable proposition as long as it doesn't move too rapidly to price people, as it were, out of the labour market. And that minimum wage level does translate substantially through multiple parts of our award system to a good portion of the economy. So we do have a form by which we can, as it were, maintain wage rewards. What we don't have beyond standard market propositions is a mechanism to say that at this particular point in time, in this particular industry, because labour productivity has improved, there must necessarily be a change in wage structures. And if we were to have that, you can't say from the rest of the analysis that governments designing that would necessarily design it particularly well. I think the social compact that works well is an acceptance that an attack on the idea of having some understood link between improved productivity in a workplace and improved reward in a workplace, an attack on that is an undesirable thing. That's the form of social contact that I think can develop, as it were, at the quite micro level and has a really good chance of being sustainable because it then can shift as circumstances require between the individuals in the workplace and the people who are doing the investing in that same workplace. I'd like to look ahead. The Governor of the Reserve Bank, Philip Lowe, in a recent speech in Perth, argued that Australia was entering what he called its next chapter in economic growth. 
Peter, you've been the chairman of the Productivity Commission since 2013, as you mentioned. Are you confident that we are creating the conditions for this next chapter to flourish? I'm not as certain that we have the construct right in terms of investment opportunity in the Australian economy. I do worry, as I said earlier, that if the mindset settles in, which says, you know, we're no longer going to get this return as an economy from multi-factor productivity that we've had for so long, if that mindset settles in, it can have an effect on investment. And investment is important not because it's about the way the people who control capital in the economy make money. Investment is most important because it's the mechanism by which we create opportunity. It creates the tools for the future. Labour productivity today is not about extracting sweat from the brow of an individual Australian. It's about, as it were, working smarter, working better. And that's generally created by investment. And I, I do worry that if we allow this thinking to settle in, which says, you know, we're no longer going to get the kind of return across the economy that we're used to, that a 1% growth in national income perpetually is going to be an acceptable future. Historically, we've had 2% real growth in national income for decade upon decade upon decade. Current circumstances of productivity suggest that we're more likely going to settle at a level half the size of that. Settling at that level in terms of providing incentives for businesses to invest and provide the tools for the future, that would be a worrying thing for me. And thus, improvement in productivity, I think, is is tremendously important to make sure that mindset doesn't settle. Peter, what reception are you hoping for this report, Shifting the Dial? Hoping that we do get this commitment to refresh between Commonwealth and State, the idea of joining together around a joint reform agenda which focuses on the delivery of services for which governments are broadly responsible to all Australians, and thus that productivity out of this phase of productivity reform, this next five years, can be about how we're delivering better services to Australians, that is, delivering them more efficiently and more reliability and with greater recognition of the flexibilities that are going to be required for a different economy. The report itself is less about the individual ideas. They're merely there to show how it could be done, but the aspiration itself is the most important thing. Thank you. It's been a fabulous conversation. I've really enjoyed catching up with Peter Harris, the Chairman of the Productivity Commission. Peter, thank you. Thanks, Glenn. And thank you for listening to The Policy Shop. This episode is produced by Owen Hahasi with audio engineering by Russell Evans with editing by Eric Van Bemmel. The University of Melbourne, copyright 2017.